to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, and I am thrilled to be sharing today's insightful conversation with you. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Associate Professor Aaron Jarden about his workplace wellbeing framework, Me, We and Us. Aaron is a Director of the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology Program at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. He is a wellbeing consultant, social entrepreneur, has multiple qualifications in philosophy, computing, education and psychology and is a prolific author and presenter. Aaron has previously been a Senior Research Fellow at Flinders University and a Head of Research at the Wellbeing and Resilience Centre at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute, and he is a past president of the New Zealand Association of Positive Psychology, also co-editor of the International Journal of Wellbeing and lead investigator for the International Wellbeing Study, amongst others. In this conversation, we discuss why does precision wellbeing matter? How can we intervene at the me, we and us level? The relationship between wellbeing and resilience and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Associate Professor Aaron Jarden. Aaron, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, thank you, Meg. It's an honour and pleasure to be here today. Today, we're going to be talking about the me, we and us, a systems-informed approach to wellbeing at work. What led you to developing this framework? Well, that's a long story that goes back about 10 years, but at the moment, I'm an academic at the University of Melbourne, but before that, I did quite a lot of consulting in industry and and a lot of practice in in large organisations and schools and, and with governments and Quite often uh, when we go there to set up a, a project around well-being or work well-being, it was always hard to have a conversation about well-being because it wasn't terminology that was forefront of many people's minds. So when we started to get resourcing for well-being, there was quite an educated process of introducing what that was. And back in the day when you had to convince people to invest in this, probably the best resource we had 10 years ago was a project that came out of the UK called the Foresight Project. And there, the UK government asked, it was roughly about 200 professors to review and summarise the whole wellbeing science literature at that point in time. Did that, and it took quite a while, a few years, and, uh, and they stumped back with four tombs of research, literally stacked a few feet high, and, and the government basically said, <laughs> that's no good to us. Uh, so then they got the New Economics Foundation and, and the lovely Nick Marks to summarise it, and out of that came the five ways to wellbeing model. But within that foresight project, there was a really nice map of all the factors and drivers of work well-being, very complicated map. You know, it was almost like an A3 page with many, many drivers, and it was very, very complicated. So I'd turn up and talk to HR managers and CEOs and sort of show them this map, and literally I could see the eyes roll back in their head as they just didn't really get it and understand the complexity of all of this. And that was my kind of key insight into, actually, we need a better way to communicate. We need a better language. 
and from that drive the me us model you can explain it to the front receptionist or you can explain it to the ceo and everyone just kind of gets it you know at the me level there's things that you can do for your well-being get to a strengths program for example and these are usually things that the organization uh, doesn't have to invest heavily in they can you know sub- subsidize some mindfulness courses for example or something like that at the we level those are things that are relational so they're between usually you and your manager so that might be something like job crafting or the you and your team people that have a regular connection with and those around relationship building skills so that's touch points with people you interact with regularly and that's what we know builds a lot of work well-being and the us level is the whole of the organization so that's things like having a well-being framework looking at impacts on well-being auditing for well-being measuring well-being funding well-being could be something like an appreciative inquiry summit which touches the whole of the organization so we've got these three kind of different levels but they all interact in one way or another and I guess what I found through my consulting practice over time was that uh, if you look at the case studies of organizations that not only build well-being cultures, but actually sustain them over time, they're doing things at all those three levels. So it's not so important where they start, whether it's top down or bottom up or you know at the us level or me level, but what they're doing is they're intervening at those three different levels quite well. That's what I reckon sustains a well-being culture over and above building one. But anyway, back to your question, it was really the language of me, we, and us. Everyone just understands it, gets it, and you know, rather than t- talking about complicated uh, other constructs. Yes, Aaron, and I still remember the first time I heard you talking about it was on Michelle McQuaid's podcast, and instantly I was like, yes, that makes complete sense. And at that stage of my life, I had little, little children, so in that newborn phase, and instantly I thought, this actually makes sense, not just at the school level, but in our family the me, the we, the us, how are we functioning? And it's just a beautiful invitation for everybody to look at an issue that can sometimes feel really complex and just out there to like, oh, this makes sense. Yeah, and and I guess sort of closely related to this is when we think about our positive psychological interventions or our ways to increase well-being, most of them are individual. They're about your well-being, but we also have a bunch which are relational or that we level is another way to put that they're about your well-being and somebody else's well-being. And we also have a very few that are pro-social. They're about somebody else's well-being per se and, and kind of full stop. So we can also break out interventions down into how they affect these kind of levels of the system as well. You know, I love how it all works in together. So here comes a big question for you, Aaron. What actually is well-being? I have no idea. Having studied this topic and actually, you know, just finished a special issue on the topic called What is Well-being? I think the more that I look into it and the more that I learn and know, the less I feel like I know about what well-being is. Um, but I do have some anchor points which are quite helpful. So if I took the academic lens, I'd say probably the most cited definition be, let me see if I can get this right, well-being can be understood as how people feel, how they function, both on an individual and social level, and how they evaluate their lives as a whole. I think that's pretty much word for word, that definition of well-being. But, but when we unpack it, there's a lot in there that's still unclear how people feel. So we've got a big emotional category there of, Positive feelings could be negative feelings, could be all sorts of emotions. Uh, so we don't really know about what's in that, and then it's how they function. So now we've got a behavioural aspect, and then it's we've got the at an individual and social level. So we've got that relational we level aspect, and then how they evaluate their lives. So we've got a cognitive aspect. We've got all these big baskets that could be filled with anything. But what it's saying really is it's a really multifaceted concept. And from that, you know, people derive very many models and theories of you know what are in those baskets, and we end up with models like the search framework or PERMA or PROSPER or and there's, there's tons of wellbeing frameworks, but that's a very holistic, broad model of a starting point, I suppose. But then again, if we look at other disciplines, the philosopher Roger Crisp just says wellbeing's how somebody's life's going for them and leaves it at that. So, you know, different disciplines also have different takes on, on what the topic of wellbeing is. I guess my anchor point is 
you know, having been a philosopher in a pre- previous life is I really love the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Not many people would have heard of him, but I, I really think he's the most prominent philosopher of the 19th century. And his philosophy of language was that words get their meaning by how people use them in the language. So if a word's used you know, in Scandinavia differently to that's used in Australia, you know, that meaning, that word has a different meaning there than it has here. So it goes against that idea of, you know, we can define things concretely and this is the definition of well-being or this is the definition of, of such and such. But so I always start with how do people understand and use this word or this terminology in this context? And of course, that varies massively by the context, whether being at work, being at school, being at home, or even between cultures. Really nice study that I just finished with a colleague in Malaysia. We looked at what school students thought. Uh, when they conceptualised of well-being, what they conceptualised when they thought about school well-being, so well-being at school rather than general life, and what they thought about when they were conceptualising academic well-being, so well-being while learning, and t- three totally different understandings and models of well-being. But if we took that research that was done in Malaysia and did that in Australia, I think we come up with totally different models again. So, for example, their spirituality and religion was was really important to the Mal- Malaysian context, whereas here I, I don't think it would have so much emphasis. And we find the same sorts of things in, in some of our other studies in different cultures. So in Japan, for example, it's about uh, safety and security. And with younger people, it's about hedonic aspects of well-being. We just get different models and maps. And that's, that relates to how people use these words around the world as well. So coming back to your question about what well-being is, I think it's a really personalized notion. I think everyone has their own understanding of, of what well-being is. I think that's fine. And I think that's a great place to start with any kind of well-being intervention at an individual level. Or even at a, even at a um, group level, such as in the school, is you know, actually understanding how the term is different to the people that you connect with because everyone's well-being is built differently, but actually understanding what they take it to mean and what's important to their well-being is really, really important. And I guess the other part of this is research clearly shows that what impacts your well-being changes over the life course. So uh, I really like the research around, you know, when you have kids, your, your sense of meaning in life goes through the roof, but your sense of hedonic well-being goes through the floor. It's that kind of idea, you know, when you're young, you're really pleasure-orientated and when you're old, you're really getting older, you're more just some legacy and meaning and those sorts of things. I love how you're highlighting here the impact of the context and culture and how much depth there is when it comes to well-being. What it means for one person would be very different to the person who you're literally sharing an office with. Absolutely. And I think that's a really under-recognised point in this field. I see a lot of well-being programs uh, coming out that are very sort of the one size fits all kind of a program with the hope that most of it will fit. Whereas I flip it and think it's more like precision medicine. What we actually need to do is understand, for example, what a great day at work looks like for a person. And then once you've got that vision, you can sort of understand what well-being is and how that fits in their great day with them. And then only from that kind of map can you build a better day at work for them and help them increase their well-being and remediate ill-being and build resilience and things like that. So those maps are different for everyone, but they can align as well. And it's taking that time to think about these things, to step back and think, what does a good day at work look like for me? What do I look like when I'm at my best? Often when I'm talking with teachers, we'll talk about what's that profile when you're surviving? What do you look like, sound like, feel like? How can we step into that script? And then how can we step into our thriving profile? And for so many educators, I get this blank look. I'm actually not as familiar with that. I don't feel like I've got a map for that. I feel like I could get a PhD in reaction and doing what I've always done. But to think differently, sometimes that can be a challenge because we haven't allowed ourselves or we haven't had the space created for us to step back and think about these questions. 
Yeah, and I, I really think you hit the nail on the head there with the last bit about creating the space because really it's all about time. But what I'm sure you find in just about every school that I go to too is teachers are time poor, schools are constantly going through change. And what we know from psychology is all change is stressful, even positive change, things like getting married or you know, going on holiday, any, any kind of change does create a certain amount of stress. Now, we call this eustress or positive stress, but it's stress nonetheless. And in the teaching profession, you know, the projects that I run, usually what we do first is take something off their plate in order to make room to put something on the plate. Otherwise, you're just not going to get by and they're not going to have the capacity to do a well-being program properly if it's just one more thing added to the plate competing with many other objectives. So usually it's about looking at what are the resource drains and what's being valuable and uh, seeing if you can uh, get rid of or park some of those to make space for something that's more valuable, such as a wellbeing program. I know you've been doing some really interesting work this year, looking at schools and how can systems create a framework that encompasses wellbeing, resilience, learning. Can you share a little bit about that? The most recent project is with absolute fantastic colleague, Andrea Downey at Project Thrive, who it's a real leader in the space of, of systems informed positive psychology and change. In fact, is an author on the key article uh, led by Peggy Kern. So essentially, the other good thing about this project is we were really interested in not applying a model to an organization or a school, uh, such as saying, you know, which of these do you think would fit your context best and which would you like to choose, but actually creating the model out of the data we extracted from the school. So that's, again, along the lines of the precision fit uh, kind of an idea. So, so with the school, we did a bit of a needs analysis. We interviewed all the leadership, we put together a, a leadership team to work on the project, we looked at all their practices and processes and gathered all that data, all the assessment data they had, uh, we ran an Appreciate Inquiry Summit, literally, you know, walked around the school and we asked all the kids at the different age levels, what do you understand well-being to be and where does well-being happen at the school and what drives well-being, you know, we asked all these questions, but also with the leadership, we asked questions like, what is more important than well-being, you know, what would put a stop to this? And, you know, we got some really interesting answers about, well, actually, we need to keep the lights on and not go broke and it would be more important to not commit a crime or do something illegal, you know, so well-being isn't the be all end all, but it's knowing where it fits within the priorities of what the school is trying to achieve and how it can enable its other endeavors. So out of this data-driven models, we had all this data, we created a model, and what we found out is the school really wanted to get into positive education. That was that was the initial contact. But but in talking to and doing a, a full and needs analysis, we figured out that coming out of COVID, they actually wanted to really remediate ill-being as well and actually build some resilience capability across the school community for potential future shocks as well. So they're actually interested in well-being, remediating or reducing ill-being, and by that I mean stress, depressed mood, anxiety, things like that. But they also wanted to build some resilience. And within those three factors, they were also really interested in how this related to the physical health of this, this staff and students, how all this related to learning as well. So they were sort of capitalizing on the literature of you know, well-being driving engagement, engaging driving performance, and performance uh, driving success. So this model that we extracted out of the data called whole being and it sort of highlighted to us that in this school, given this data, that well-being wasn't the ultimate goal. This thing that we called whole-being, which is a higher level order factor of having well-being, having less ill-being, having resilience, seeing how that related to uh, health and, and academic performance across those three levels of me, we, and us in a system that was had environmental impacts as well. Um, that was the kind of model that really fit uh, that school given their context and where they wanted to go. And what a powerful framework, the whole being model, thinking about resilience, well-being, ill-being, and how interrelated all these concepts are and having that full 
picture because that can be one of the criticisms when it comes to wellbeing education and positive psychology. People feel like there are those missing gaps. And this really feels quite whole in the sense of that whole being. Yeah, yes. When you talk to people, they mention these words. They could sometimes use different words. You know, they might use the word resilience, they might not use the word ill-being, but the, the factors which go within those constructs that they'll highlight. And, you know, from an academic perspective, we know, for example, that well-being and resilience are really highly correlated. It's about 0.5. So that, that sort of suggests that, you know, in building somebody's resilience, you're also going to build their well-being. And in building somebody's well-being, you're also going to build their resilience. And this fits with much research important and built area, positive emotions, for example. The more of those you have, the more capacity you have to withstand shocks or be more resilient. But also with ill-being, you know, there's, although there's academic debate about whether it's one continuum or, or two or, and, you know, how these things relate. But by and large, you know, if you improve somebody's well-being, you probably reduce their ill-being. And, and if you take a clinical approach or reduce somebody's ill-being, you're in some way improving their well-being. So whilst the academics still disagree and study these things, I think what they'd conclude is actually the three constructs are highly related, but there's different intervention points to be able to target them. There's quite some well-researched ways to say, for example, build resilience or to target stress and anxiety. But also now we've got the quite a science about building well-being as well. I think the kicker of all this though is when you ask people, what would you rather do? Should we sit down and talk about your beliefs and and work on you know cbt for, for for something or would you rather build our well-being and let's talk about your strengths and sense of meaning in life and things like that my experience is people would rather do well-being uh, stuff yes and it's so beautiful to highlight that relationship between well-being and resilience and i know for myself and personal experience when i am feeling well i feel more robust I feel like I can manage whatever's coming my way. But when I'm not feeling so good, when I'm feeling quite wobbly, the idea of trying to navigate can feel so impossible at times. Yeah, and, and I think the other part that's under-realised that, that I love, Denise Conlon makes this point quite often, is you know, resilience is really not just an individual level factor. It really has to do with the support of uh, your family and friends and community and the resources that you can draw on. So everyone has a breaking point for resilience. There are no perfect people, but one way to build it is to, just not individual thinking skills or psychology, but it's actually investing in your community uh, and your network and, uh, and you know, the way that you interact with people can make you more resilient per se. And I think that's, that's kind of a message that's m- missed a lot as well. So I totally agree with Denise. Another personal observation I've noticed in myself and the teachers that I work with is as they become more aware about what works for them, they're building up this self-awareness, they're building up this self-knowledge, they're taking deliberate action. When they are struggling, they're much better at reaching out for that support to articulate what's going on for them and not hide it. Yeah, and that's a real strength of the teaching profession. You don't see that in bankers or lawyers, but that that self-reflection and particularly followed on by reflective practice provides that insight which then enables that kind of leadership in a a group or a team at a school. The flip side of this is if you look at the extent of self-reflective practice that happened in teaching, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was an awful lot more than happens now. It's a real dwindling kind of time, time asset that educators have, but, but that's one thing that uh, they have more than other professions. And it'd be really shame if they lose that because of the time pressures. So when you think about your own wellbeing over time, how has your understanding in the way that you function changed? I think the literature is relatively new and not everything's being researched. You know, I could say things that drive my well-being haven't been researched or are really poorly researched. So, for example, one of the research trends I'm currently trying to set up now is the link between simplifying your life 
and well-being. I kind of think the pace of life is really fast and humans are kind of the bottleneck and I think there's an aspect to actually uh, slowing down, peering back, prioritizing what's most important, but you know, cutting that to-do list down and I find that for me is really for my well-being. And I guess the other thing is taking a very authentic values-driven approach to life. So I wrote my whole PhD about 10 years ago on values alignment and how values relate to well-being and living your life in alignment with your values. But, you know, there's almost no research in psychology since since the 80s on the link between values, values congruence, values alignment, and, and it's linked to well-being. So even in, in our field, if you talk to practitioners like Susie Green, they'll say, actually, prioritizing people's values is probably the most important thing in working with clients, but there's no research on it. And, you know, I remember when I was doing my PhD, you know, the, the most used tool in the field is the personal values card sort for Bill Miller and I asked him you know how did you guys come up with this and he said you know we went, we went to the pub and we wrote it on the back, back of a napkin so a lot of that research also probably not as solid as it needs to be but I think the bigger point here is if you listen to people and how they talk they talk about their values they talk about what's most important to them so we need a lot more research about values and how that relates to well-being and in my view I think it's a very neglected area of, of well-being science. Yes, because that values piece, you can see how people's experience at work and in their life can really shift once they've created space to think about that and then align their behaviours with that. And it also makes me think about that precision piece that you brought up earlier, how we're moving from a really broad strokes approach to wellbeing to precision. What do you need to be well? Well, I, th- I think to be well, you need to have an understanding. Well, I'll put this in the frame of the research. So the research would say things that will uh, improve your well-being will be, you know, the number one factor is our social connections and relationships. So investing in them. So this might be even if you've got bad relationships with your parents or your brothers or whoever it is, you can always make them better. So it would say your number one bang for buck will come from investing in social relationships. Now, that's different for everyone, whether you're an introvert or extrovert, number of friends, you can still invest more in quality relationships, no matter where you are on that spectrum. Probably the second thing that really impacts well-being, according to literature, would be having a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And I'd throw values into the air. Quite often have conversations with Mike Steger and Todd Cashton. So Mike Steger's a real, real expert in meaning and Todd's a real expert in purpose about what's bedrock, you know, which of these constructs drives the other. And for me, it's values. From your sense of what's important in life, you develop a sense of meaning, which you further narrow to a purpose. But for, for Mike, it's having a sense of meaning that helps identify your value. You know, so we all have different ideas about what's more bedrock of these three constructs of values, meaning, and purpose. But at the end of the day, there's no research on this. Um, there's some research between meaning and purpose, but there's no longitudinal research to see how they develop and, and which is more bedrock. Anyway, so to answer your question, those are the two most important things. I'd probably quickly throw in behind that an understanding of your strengths as an enabler. T- ton of research on that now as well. And thinking about these concepts, when you work with organisations over a period of time, and you've shared the me, the we, and us to look at it from different layers, what are some signs that you're thinking we're on a good thing here? There's some progress being made. Well, I guess my academic specialty is around assessment and evaluation at wellbeing. So I'm really keen on organisations taking data-driven decisions. Uh, So it's about setting up good assessment capture at the start, and not just about whether wellbeing's improving or not, but actually what's driving it. Some real complicated assessment, depending on what their goals are and what the intervention programs they're planning are and things like that. But, you know, it's a really long journey for most organizations. You've got to really set those expectations of, you know, three to five years or even longer, depending on the size and complexity of the organization. 
You can get uh, small wins quickly as well, but if you're collecting data so that you can continually assess it and pivot once you know what's working and what's not, I think that's really a keystone. Uh, but what I see in industry is very little good quality evaluation and assessment around well-being projects. And there's been some good reports by you know some of the consulting firms like PricewaterhouseCoopers showing that you know when good evaluation is done, it's done you know very very seldom, and most of the evaluation is things like just taking a post assessment and, and not even measuring drivers of well-being and things like that. So and and I think that's because you know weren't enough people with the knowledge to do it well, and you know organisations didn't have the capacity to do it themselves. You know so there's a bunch of factors which kind of got in the way. But what I'd like to see is better assessment evaluation, so you know what's working, you can pivot when it's not, you can prove that prove that the uh, interventions are working and providing value and things like that. It is so important that we start to think about this precision approach, thinking about how we're collecting data, what's driving decisions. And as we come towards the end of the conversation, I thought it would be helpful for listeners to hear some different interventions we can use at the me, we and us level. So at the me level, again, it's a very individualized, personalized notion. I think of it as N equals one from a scientist's perspective. N being you are the population, you are the sample size. You've got to try these things out and kick the tires and see if they work for you. The research will say mindfulness works for 80% of the people. Are you in that 80% or are you in the 20%? For a lot of people, if high track level anxiety can actually make you a little bit worse. I'm pulling your attention to that anxiety. But I know for me, mindfulness is just not my not my jam. But for most people, it is. But, but that's because I've tried it and I've tried it in different ways and you know, but I've figured out through trial and error which ones work for me. So actually some of the projects we've ran, like one was called the Tuesday program, we set up a whole bunch of interventions and then we kind of looked to see which ones people opt to do. And what we found was people, if you explain what the interventions are, they're actually pretty accurate picking whether they're going to have any value for them. So at the individual level, I think it's about trying things. At the we level, again, this depends on the quality, the connections, the knowledge of uh, people and their relationships, you know, whether it's a new team or an established team and job crafting uh, between union managers has a really solid empirical base now. So I think that's really valuable. So that's about having conversations with your manager about the tasks that you do in your job, your relationships and how you're thinking about ha- uh, how you're having impacted in your role and things like that. At the us level, that's the harder one, you know, for an individual, unless you're a senior manager or have decision-making power or control or resources. We can really do is advocate for the importance of it in regards to the other things that are important. You might want to set up a trial of a, a more mini appreciative inquiry type approach within your organization, or um, you might want to argue for a wellbeing budget or an audit or something like that. That's a much harder one. And usually the us part comes once you've had some traction in the other two. Yes, Aaron, you have given us so much to think about. To wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yes, sure. I am inspired by? I'm inspired by my mum. She's at the end of her life. She's quite accepting of that. Uh, she's had a lovely life. She's, she literally says she's worn, worn herself out. She's had so much fun. Yeah, I, I, I look at the way that she's lived her life and, I, you know, that's inspired me. When life feels hard? I fall back, take a break, take a breath, talk to people, and then just realise that it's not meant to be easy. It is meant to be hard. It's how you... How are you managing cope with that? Yeah, and also realize there's growth in that. An underrated skill is? Simplifying your life. Saying no more and prioritizing what's most valuable. And I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the Christmas break. Uh, we're going to New Zealand going camping and I love camping, getting out into nature and it's a great time with the family that we can have you know, close and depth conversations uh, in a lake in the middle of nowhere with no Wi-Fi and nothing else. 
So the, those are the timeout points of the year where you get to sit back, reflect, self-reflect and, and prioritize life, family, the year ahead, those sorts of things. So in the busy world that we're living. Aaron, you have given us so much to think about in this conversation and thank you for the work that you are doing with your colleagues to research what helps us to be well. It makes such a difference because we can learn from everything that you're learning and sharing and thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast today. Thank you and and I'd just like to thank all educators out there because I also realised the huge amount of effort that you put into your jobs and Everybody in every school is on a well-being journey and, and provides some well-being, even if it's not formalised, uh, to the lives of others, particularly the, the kids that they're responsible for and the other staff. So, you know, whilst I do research and, and learn things, uh, I realise all the practitioners out there are actually making, making this world a better place and implementing it. So keep going and know that you're doing well and it's appreciated. What an incredible conversation. I am blown away with how much we have covered in such a short period of time. And I love Aaron's invitation for us to create space to reflect on what does good look like? What does good look like in your home, in your classroom, in your staff room, and really create a blueprint for what you want good to look like? To learn more about Aaron and his research, you can see the show notes for more details. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs, or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 109. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.